Hey everybody, it's Jeff. Before we start today, I wanted to give you some more details about the MXU Live Tour coming this fall. So September 9th, we'll be in Atlanta, Georgia. September 13th, Chicago, Illinois. September 16th, Dallas, Texas. Lee and I will be there with our good friends, John Sal and Jenna Barrientes from Elevation Church. And we also have our three area specialists. Corey Edwards will be handling audio, Rusty Anderson on video, Daniel Cannell on lighting. So you and your whole team can learn from us throughout the day as we prepare, plan, and execute a 20-minute worship set from start to finish, from morning until late afternoon. So we can't wait to see you there. Go to getmxu.com slash live and grab your tickets before the early bird ends. So we hope to see you there. You are now entering the MXU podcast. No credentials required. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 116 of the MXU podcast. I'm Jeff Sandstrom, and I'm here with my co-host and co-founder and co-laborer, Lee Fields. And we are joined today by Jason Waffle from Sure. He is a senior specialist in market development and pro audio, and we are thrilled to be talking to a microphone manufacturer today about all things microphones. So boys, how you doing? Fantastic, guys. Thanks so much for having us. I'm happy to be here. I, I didn't really know coming into this that you'd never had a mic manufacturer on before, but uh, I guess I'll say we're honored to be the first. Yeah, I mean, you're the presidential microphone of the United States of America, so I, I don't know how we could have anybody else on here. <laughs> That's right, Hail baby. to the chief. Dual yeah. 57s on that custom mount. You got it. Yeah, I mean, I know I don't, we weren't going to plan on talking about this, but isn't it crazy that the White House still uses 257s? I, it really is. I, you know, there's there's a bunch of historical stuff on that. If you ever get a chance uh, to go up to Sure headquarters and take a tour, which we, we can do uh, for, well, I think it's open now. The COVID thing had shut it down for a while, but... Uh, it's crazy. All, there's just this whole thing when you walk in the front lobby of the history of Sure, right? We'll be 98 years old uh, next year. And there's pictures of just so many presidents with that same setup going on. And it's yeah. just what they, they know and love. And it, it works great. That's awesome. Well, you know, we've all used, uh, I mean, countless Sure products over the years. Um, for me, my favorite standard drum mic setup is still, you know, 57s on the snare. 91 and a 52 in the kick drum, 98s on toms, and then, you know, typically KSM 32s on overheads. And it just works. Like, you know, for me, it's like if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I'll put a 57 on a guitar amp yeah. or a snare drum. And yeah. it's just, it's just awesome every time. So at least you know what to expect and you can make it work in any scenario. So, yeah, they're so common. I feel like that's kind of where a lot of people cut their teeth on. It's what they're used to, it's what they get comfortable with early. And then, you know, be, being a a mic manufacturer now or working for a mic manufacturer, I think it's there's always this fine line of watching all the new mic capsules come out. And I call it the flavor of the week situation sometimes of like, oh, uh, yeah. the, the internet's gone crazy over this capsule or this drum mic setup or whatever it is. And that's the best thing is that's just people trying to be really good at their craft, right? To, to a yeah. certain degree. Yeah. And they're trying things out and they're doing some critical listening. And if we're not doing that, what are we doing, right? But at the end of the day, I think there's there is a staple of products that Sure makes that uh, everybody can fall back on uh, and know that they're going to work and know that the sound they're going to get. And you're right, it's it's consistent and it's accurate and uh, seems to be what we're what we're really good at. So, Jason, you're from Las Vegas originally, and I see some Golden Knights uh, swag yeah, behind you there. Absolutely. So, how did you get into the industry? Give us like a one minute summary of what got you to this point. Okay, uh, I went to audio school uh, in Los Angeles uh, when I was uh, early early in my twenties. Uh, thought I was going to be a studio engineer, uh, like so Didn't many of we us. All. I know, right? <laughs> uh, wanted to cut records. <laughs> Such a common story. Um, I swept floors in a couple of terrible studios and worked at a label in LA and was like doing the starving artist thing for a little while. Uh, and I found um, a shop back in Vegas, which is where I grew up, like you mentioned, um, that did boutique wireless RF stuff for broadcast. Um, and I walked in the front door. I was the only applicant out of a handful to just walk in and shake the owner's hand and introduce myself. And that was enough to get me hired. And I tell that story because I think that helps young people kind of, you know, today's age, yeah. it's so easy just to send a resume and stop thinking about it. 
Uh, anyways, uh, that that led me into about a 10-year career of boutique RF for broadcast. So I did high channel count RF coordinations and antenna system design for mostly television stuff, big award shows, big sporting events, uh, all kinds of stuff for just about a decade. Um, and, you know, I was gone a lot. I traveled a ton. I was on the road all the time. Um, my, uh, my wife and I were looking to, at the time, get married and uh, possibly start a family. So I started exploring some maybe more stable options that are still in the industry. Uh, and lucky enough, I uh, threw this dart at the, the Sure dartboard and it landed, uh, landed on the bullseye. And here I am. It's been just about two and a half years now that I've been with Sure. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, based on your experience and your sort of niche expertise, I would love to dig into some RF stuff yeah. in this episode because I think, you know, you know that most of our audience is church production folks, and there are a lot of wireless mics and wireless belt packs in ears in churches all over the country. So some of those are deployed really well, and some of those are uh, full of maybe not the best practices or some mistakes. So I know that people are going to be able to learn a lot from you and from your expertise. So this is not to say that, you know, sure is the only one making wireless products that are good. I mean, that we all know that there are other manufacturers that, that are doing good work, but there's a bunch that try, but there's, there's really only one other one that's acceptable. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's be honest. But in terms of, like you said, industry standard and, you know, tools like wireless workbench and other things that help us deploy those tools more easily. It's like, man, sure is to me kind of the benchmark. Yeah. So there's a lot of a lot of areas we can go down in this conversation and we will. But let's start with what do you think is the biggest mistake that you see churches making when you go in and kind of analyze systems for people? I think uh it's a great question. Uh if I had to nail it down to just one, um I think I would say hmm, probably antenna placement uh, is often looked over for anything that's mid or or large size campuses. Um, the, it's funny. The biggest question or call I get that's usually the easiest thing to answer when I go out on visits and see is like, you'll walk in and there's nothing happening, right? Because I'm there uh, on a Saturday or someday midweek to try to troubleshoot something. And you walk in and you look immediately, I look at the RF rack and like if the RSSI meters or the receive indicating meters are are lit up and nothing's happening, like your noise floor is through the roof. Uh, and more often than not, what's happened is somebody will take their in-ear monitor transmit antenna and put it right next to one of their receive antennas. So they've got eight in-ears transmitting out of an antenna with that's a bunch of RF energy. Um, and the first thing I do is I just turn their DA off uh, that's sending the in-ear transmits out. And you turn that off and you watch, you can literally just watch the mic receivers, all the RSSI go away and it cleans everything up. And you go, you're just, you're hurting yourself by placing your transmit antenna way too close to your receive antenna. And all it really takes is like six feet or so. It's not a massive adjustment, right? And so then I'll walk over and if I can, I'll grab the transmit antenna and I'll literally just move it six feet further away from the receive antenna and turn that transmit combiner back on. And you'd be amazed at how much it'll clean up an RF rack just from proper antenna placement. So uh, I preach on that all the time. I try to anyways, and I know everybody talks about placement, but some people don't think about it. Sometimes it's an afterthought. Sometimes you you put these antennas up in an install or an install team comes in and does this for you and they're not necessarily trained on it as, as the way they should be. But I see more self-inflicted harm yeah. uh, than mm. I do like actual interference or actual poor coordination. Like we talk about all these things, but the basics of RF is like, just keep your transmit signals away from your receive, receive signals, both in physical space and in coordination. Uh, and I think that's probably the number one offense that I see happen most often. So most churches, if they have any in-ears, they may be at front of house beside the console, racked yep. up beside their pastor's mic or their worship yep. leader's mic in exactly. the same rack exactly. with quarter wave antennas off the back of them stacked on top of each other. Correct. That yep, is no good. That's no good. That's, that's a, two semis driving down a one-way street. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> At each yeah. other. <laughs> yeah, and the easiest way to test that, like I said, is just turn off whatever's transmitting, right? So if you have your ears and they're sitting right next to your mics and like you can look at most manufacturers, I know our stuff does, they have meters on the front that it's telling you what the RF level is. And like just, 
you know, walk in this weekend and and turn your transmits off and see what it does to your mic rack. And if yep. you're seeing a significant reduction in RF noise floor, then you need to put some physical separation in between those or some some RF coordination separation, probably both. But yep. the physical separation will probably help you a ton right out of the gate. That's great. And see, that's something that most people who don't have experience or they're at a small church and they just don't know, they literally just don't know. Like yeah, it's, right. you know, it, it really is, you know, a little bit of ignorance. And so just that little bit of knowledge can really help. That's cool. So what about, let's talk about intermod. You know, mm, I mm-hmm. think a lot of people haven't heard of that, but they confuse dropouts and intermod mm, and mm-hmm. the and the sound that it makes is that little like <laughs> sound. Yep. Yeah. yeah well, first so, of all, am I right? That's the intermod when you hear that. It can be. Yeah. It, it's not always intermod, but it's it's definitely some sort of noise floor gate happening in the in ear. Oftentimes, it is intermod uh, that gives you kind of that wispy uh, flyby air sound. Yeah. Um, you know, the two terms that get thrown around all the time in RF is like dropout and interference. And yep. they're two very different things. Like a dropout is when there's nothing interfering with your signal. You have a good noise floor. It's just that the signal is f- too far away from the receiving antennas to get a quality reception, right? So that's a dropout. That's just where, whether it's, you know, multipath, which we can talk about more later, or uh, you're just too far away, that's going to be a dropout. And then interference is another signal or another RF level that's interfering with the signal that you are trying to achieve, right? And so kind of right out of the gate, making sure you know the difference between those two things and what they sound like and what they look like will help you determine the course of action to solve that problem. Um, and then as you asked before, intermods is, uh, I, I equate this to most most audio <laughs> personnel or musicians to a certain degree. And like, if you play a middle C on a piano, you will hear a few notes above and below that if you have good ears, right? And what that is, is the thirds and the fifths and the sevenths that make up a major chord, right? You play the, the constant, the third and the fifth together and you get this lovely chord sound. Harmonics. And that's harmonics. Yep, exactly. Uh, and so they combine well in the audio side of things, but in the RF side of things, they're detrimental. Uh, and as you add more wireless frequencies together, you can get these thirds, these fifths, these seventh harmonics that combine uh, to um, create a higher power interference event, which then mathematically gives you problems from a coordination standpoint. So that's the main purpose why coordination software exists and has been designed, right? So Sure makes wireless workbench. There's a handful of other frequency coordination softwares available to you. Uh, and like the reality is, is most of that is designed or was designed initially to avoid uh, intermodulation interference events. Um, you can do the math on your own. There's You can find the calculation, but it's yeah. a pain. So get a free software, plug your numbers in and make sure, you're, again, you're not just harming yourself by selecting frequencies that are landing on uh, intermods. Yeah, so to really simplify that, you have uh, a microphone and it's broadcasting on uh, X dot X mm-hmm. megahertz, but it's also sending signal out two or three other frequencies on the lower side of that number and the right side, if you think about it on a timeline. Correct. And the higher signal that you have, if you have like super strong antennas and you're just blasting, um, you're blasting, what's the proper term here? Uh, it's radio signal. Yeah. Or if yep. you're blasting, blasting RF, yeah. Um, it can actually, the harmonics of it in some cases, be as strong or stronger than other microphones Correct. near those harmonic ranges. Correct. And it can cause dropouts because your harmonics are actually stronger than that um, the original mic signal. Yeah, really cool exercise to like visualize this if you have the equipment to do it. If you have Workbench uh, or a scan, any scan software, you know, there's a bunch out there, RF Explorer or whatever, like any scan tool you have, um, put your receive antenna right next to your in-ear transmitters, uh, assuming that you have at least two or three of them. so like the intermod interference doesn't happen with one microphone because there's nothing for those uh, harmonics to interact with and then continue to gain power. So you have to have multiple transmitters. Uh, and distance is is comes into play with this. I don't know if like you've seen um, A2 tables on big award shows or even some churches have them with the, the RF trays, basically yep. the bread tins. Yep. Um, 
that's not an organization thing. That is just enough metal isolation to stop all of those transmitters on the table from just creating an intermod firestorm. Yeah. Uh, and just that little bit of metal, which blocks RF, as we know, uh, helps keep all of the intermods from that table creating a massive noise floor issue. So that's where that comes from. But back to the example, if you can just take your receive antenna that's feeding whatever scanner you have, whether it's Workbench or an Explorer, and put it right next to your transmitters and then take a scan, you'll see the noise floor go way through the roof. And then just walk like eight feet away and take the same scan or move your receive antenna eight feet away and take the same scan. And you'll be able to see the noise floor drop. And if you were to zoom way in on that scan, you would basically be able to identify the math that says these are thirds and fifths and seventh harmonics outside yep. of the original transmitter. I've also seen it before where people have um, these high-powered distribution amplifiers. You said DA mm -hmm. earlier. That's what mm -hmm. that is. Yeah. And right beside the rack, they'll have the antenna. And then they decide, oh, this is going to have to move now. And we need to move it 100 feet away. So let's go buy 200 feet of cable, mm -hmm. a BNC cable. Mm -hmm. And the length of that cable and the impedance actually causes the signal to drop. Yeah, there's there's RF loss over cable distance, right? So we're losing signal over the, the length of cable that we add. So having the proper cable type, um, you know, it's it gets more expensive as you get a better, thicker piece of cable that has less loss and more shielding. Uh, and then, you know, regardless of the best cable in the world, once you get to a certain distance, you're going to have enough loss that the signal's not... Um, receivable on the uh, on the backside. This is where some of the RF over fiber conversations coming into place, which is probably not for today. But uh, uh, it's expensive, and there's converters that happen, but it's basically lossless to a certain degree. So, oh wow, I didn't even uh, know about that. And let's remind everybody real quick about impedance too, because I know mm -hmm. you know a lot of churches have a bunch of coax cable sitting in their closet somewhere, and they just feel like, well, I'll just pick up a cable because I need this connector but the impedance of the actual cable matters. So remind everybody what impedance we're looking for and what is the optimal distance. Yeah, so RF audio cable is 50 ohm, whereas your coaxial video cables that you have are gonna be 75 ohm. So uh, can you, in a pinch, use a short 75 ohm video cable if you had to? Yes, it will pass the information. It's just gonna do it at a much higher loss rate than uh, a proper 50 ohm coax RF cable will. And what I mean is like a short jumper in a rack. You're never gonna run a 75 ohm cable out to remote an antenna. That's a terrible idea. But for a short jumper, if you're in a pinch and you had to, uh, you could, but 50 ohm. And then like, you know, your second part of that question is what's the proper distance? Um, you know, 100 feet at, with a good cable, an LMR or an RGB or something like that, it's going to be uh, RG8, excuse me. Um, 100, 150 feet, I would say, at, at is the max you would ever want to go. And even then, you're going to have to start do, doing like link margin loss, which is essentially how you calculate what loss is happening from the signal hitting the antenna and then when it gets to the rack. Uh, there's tools to do this. They're expensive. Um, but, you know, I, I try to preach that RF has to stop being an afterthought. It was an afterthought for mm -hmm. so long. You would just buy some gear and turn it on and, like, hit scan on the front of the thing and plug some stuff in. And, like, most people don't spend a lot of time on it. Um, and I, I try to recoin the phrase, like, RF accessories to RF infrastructure. Like, you're going to... We live in a world where we're going to have to start to uh, dedicate time and a little bit of resources to... Uh, the RF infrastructure, if that's what, you know, our congregation or our producers or whatever it is demands, right? And so you have to start having a conversation about budget and time. Well, especially with more and more bandwidth being taken away mm. by cell phone providers and other, you know, TV stations and HD antennas and all those kinds of things, all the more important that we encourage people to do their due diligence and do their homework and make sure that not only is there frequency choice and deployment in a good space for where they are geographically, but little things like distance from the receiver to the antenna and vice versa. It's like, okay, if you've got all your rack of stuff at front of house and you've got paddles on stage and your cable's running through 200 feet of conduit to get there, you may be better served by just moving all that gear backstage with the paddles and antennas and keep it all together and you lose the convenience maybe of front of house but 
you've got tools like Workbench and other things that you can manage that remotely and not have to have your fingers right in front of the unit anymore. So some of those things that used to be a necessity may not be anymore because of the way the technology has changed. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And like, you know, we just mentioned RF over fiber, but again, that's probably not a realistic solution for a lot of budgets. But with so much digital audio networking taking place and digital snakes, it is so easy now to move your RF rack onto a stage and run that back to front of house, right? It's gotten a lot simpler. And you're not talking about loss from an RF side of things when you do that because your antennas are now closer to the stage and closer. So you're right, I walk into a lot of churches and all of their RF is at front of house. And the second aspect to that is like, then also think about like how much distance you've, you've created between the antenna and the stage itself. And then what's between you and the stage and the antennas? Uh, on Sundays, it's a whole lot of people, which, you know, from an RF world, we're just giant sacks of water, which, <laughs> right. which doesn't pass RF very well, right? So, you know, you can test this stuff during the week and it's great. And come Sunday when your congregation is full of people, you go, why is my signal so much lower? Well, there's a lot more stuff for that RF signal to compete with on Sundays. So like this is your, where the... Like your brand new LED wall? <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that, you know, that's, that's funny that LED walls were notorious for making a ton of noise. Uh, I don't know, five or six years ago, if you've got something that's older than seven or eight years in your, in, in your setup, you may want to do a scope on it and find out, uh, how much RF bleed it's creating. The, the manufacturers have gotten pretty hip to solving that recently. Um, it's not nearly as bad as it used to be. What happened was these manufacturers went to the, the FCC approval with one panel and got that one panel approved from an RF uh, bleed perspective. Well, huh. now you plug 100 panels or 1,000 panels in together to that. End. Uh, uh, yeah, I was going to say, you said 100. I'm like, you've been to Texas? You've seen yeah. some of these churches? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? Uh, and so that little, that little amount of bleed that came from that one panel was approved and was acceptable from an RF interference perspective, but it's not when you combine that into a large-scale setup. So luckily, uh, that's been mostly resolved from most manufacturers I know. There's still a little bit of noise coming from LED walls, but the biggest thing there is that that's just a wall of electronics, which is a wall of metal, essentially, uh, which RF does not pass through. Um, so yeah. RF will go through wood, it'll go through most uh, curtains, uh, it'll go through drywall. It's not going through metal. Metal is the biggest thing that it's going to you know, not pass through. So uh, that's, you know, if your antennas are behind your LED wall pointing at a stage that's on the other side, uh, you're not going to have very good luck with that system install. I remember years ago being at a, a training event where Tim Veer was doing a demo on RF. And, mm -hmm. you know, he's, he's a genius. Mm -hmm. He's forgotten more about RF than most <laughs> yeah. of us will ever know. And he um, just did a little, a little demo. He had a paddle antenna, and there happened to be a support pole in the middle of this auditorium where we were. And he just tweaked the antenna a little bit so that the aiming of the antenna was hitting the pole. And the mic went from perfectly stable to unusable with just a half inch move of the antenna. So for people who are in a portable space or a setup teardown, or you're doing a renovation and you have things that are metal in your room, you've got to be aware of that because it will not go through. So yeah, that's a great point. Tim Veer. Yeah. He, uh, he's retired actually. He just retired about a year did ago. He? So he's, uh, he did, man. Uh, that he makes me feel old. Did. I, know. <laughs> <laughs> I know he, uh, he sailed off. I, I think, I don't know what he's doing. I haven't talked to him in a while, but, uh, yeah, we had a big retirement party for him. He, he will be gravely missed. Uh, that's for sure. But a lot of his articles and a lot of his influence on our, uh, you know, our Sure Audio Institute uh, is obviously still around. But no, you're absolutely right. When I was on, when I was in the field or on the road, like I would walk into an arena, you know, it'd be a set shoot strike day or whatever it may be. And we'd have a big sporting event that night. And the first like three hours of my day was planning my antenna placement. You know, like walking around, getting a tour, figuring out where I can run cable. How can I get this here? Because, you know, the two biggest loss areas in any RF system is free space path loss, which is what happens through the air. Um, and then what happens in the cable from your antenna getting back to your system, right? Those are the two places where your RF will take the most amount of loss. Uh, and the reality is, is you, it's really hard to calculate the free space path loss, it's just, you know, it changes all the time. There's multipath. There's no way to, to put a, 
an instrument on this and find out what that loss is. Uh, but what you can define is the loss from your antenna back to your rack and how much is in that cable, right? So that's the side of things that we try to focus on and go, okay, how much loss is in this cable that I put up? How far is this distance? What am I expecting from an acceptable level? Um, and then how do I tweak that, right? So, you know, this this is comes into the second most common mistake I see uh, in in RF installments is using an amplified antenna uh, for receive. Yeah, and all these antennas have these amplifiers on them, and they go you know plus twelve or minus six or whatever it is. And all the time, I'll walk in, and these people have their antennas set to plus twelve, and their directional LPDA fans that are fifty feet from a stage in a small congregation or a small house worship, and they've got 10 feet of cable and you know what you're doing is you're adding 16 or 17 db of noise because you have no loss because it's such a small room and the cable's so short where you probably would be a bit better suited actually going like negative six on that installation mm-hmm. and dropping the noise floor down a little bit um or ditching the paddle and putting a quarter wave on yeah absolutely yep you can ditch a hundred percent you're right yeah like if you if you look up the the mic or the antenna information for all these antenna types, they look a lot like a microphone graph in terms of how they pick up and where their gain is. You know, cardioids, hypercardioid, whatever it is. So, if you're using an LPDA, that's got six to nine dB of gain, just like based on the design of that antenna in and of itself. So if you've only got one dB of loss on your cable or three dB of loss on your cable and you've got six dB of active gain, you're adding three dB of noise in that link margin calculation, kind of what I talked about earlier. And so what you have to remember is you're not, you're not just adding gain to the frequencies that you want, right? Your, your pastor's mic's 470.5. Like, okay, I'll hit plus 12 and I'm going to get 12 dB more of 470.5. You're getting 12 dB more of everything, the antenna doesn't know. It's not smart yet, right? So you're just adding all of the DTV cha- channels, all of the intermods, everything that you have that's causing your system noise has been added. It's just like gain in an audio system, right? Like, it's so funny how RF is voodoo magic, as people say, but it is signal to noise ratio in just like everything else we do, right? The RF signal I want and how much noise exists and do I have enough separation for it to be clean? And also, you guys, another, I mean, it's a quick fix. It's not ideal, but attenuators, it's just a little metal adapter. Yep. And it's, it's like two, three inches long. And you just put that in the path of the antenna and it attenuates that signal by different amounts, depending on what the attenuator is. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Mini circuits makes the most common versions of those. I don't even, I don't think, I don't even think sure makes any. I probably should know that answer. But uh, I used to carry a, you know, 50 in my work box. It would be a bunch of every, every level, two, three, six, 10, 12, 20 different attenuators. And, you know, attenuating your RF signal is almost always the proper answer versus boosting it, unless you are doing a more advanced, long cable run installation. Yeah. Um, and so I think people have that backwards. I think that's a thing that a lot of people don't know, and they're really going to get insight from that tip. That's That's huge. I've been on shows before where, they didn't have an attenuator, but they just pulled the 10 foot cable and dropped a hundred foot cable in instead. And it did the yep. trick. Absolutely. Yeah. You're adding more loss from the cable length, bring it down a little bit, drop your noise floor down, get a better signal noise ratio. So every time you attenuate, you attenuate the noise floor. Every time you amplify, you amplify the noise floor. So make sure you're amplifying for a very specific reason. If, you know, if anything, go for that attenuation uh, instead. Okay, can we talk about our favorite government agency, the FCC? <laughs> Love them. Actually, they're they're my favorite right behind the CDC. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hey everybody, since we're talking about microphones today, I figured it'd be a good time to give a shout out to our friends at micrentals.com. These are a great bunch of guys who really want to help you get the right solutions for your environments. So if you need to try out a new capsule for a drum or a singer, or maybe you want to get a bucket of capsules to demo different microphones on each of your singers to figure out the one that fits them best. Or maybe you're doing a special event this summer where you need some additional wireless. Uh, Mike Rentals is the place to go. Just enter the code MXU15 at checkout and you'll get 15% off your entire order. So if you have a need for microphones, go to MikeRentals.com 
Check it out today. All right, let's get back to the show. Okay, Jason, give us a, a lot of people know about this clearly, mm-hmm. but a lot of people still don't. They don't have any idea of how this even happened in the beginning and where we're mm-hmm. at now. So take us back. I guess it's been about 15 years now mm-hmm. of w- when this happened and where we're at now and what's still to come. Or is there anything still to come? Well, you know, if I had, if I knew that, I probably would start making my own gear for whatever's going to come next. But I, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, um, yeah. So, fifteen years ago or so, I think you were right. We used to have like, uh, as far as what what spectrum we could use as non licensed uh, end users of wireless microphones was like four seventy to. Um, 800 almost. Uh, and then they sold off the seven to 800 megahertz spectrum. So a hundred megahertz of, of chunk, essentially a third of what we used to have available. And that was, yeah, 15 or more years ago. Uh, and then just recently in the last eight or nine years, um, the FCC sold off the 600 megahertz. So 600 to 700. So basically another- Thanks T-Mobile. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yep. Another third. And that's correct. A lot of the telecoms bought this, right? So T-Mobile, AT&T, Verizon kind of picked their chunks and purchased a bunch of this uh, spectrum space to essentially give your cell phones what we now know as 5G and what we will continue to know as improved 5G. Um, I always like to make the joke, if if I could sell air for billions of dollars, I probably would. So as much as I dislike what they did, uh, it's hard to argue it entirely from a financial standpoint. Um, So what that left us with was pretty much 470 to 608 megahertz in the UHF spectrum, which is a third of what we used to have. Um, And the more important part of this is we shared all of that space with digital television channels. So if you wanted to watch channel four in your local market and you had a DTV antenna that was plugged into your you know, TV, you didn't have cable, that's how you would get that TV station, like bunny ears, old school days or whatever. So uh, essentially what that means is all of the DTV stations that are happening in your area um, were operating over this you know, 300 plus megahertz space. And now they are all forced to now move or repack their transmitters down into the same small amount of spectrum that we have left, 470 to 608. So not only do we have a third of the spectrum we used to have 15 or 20 years ago, it's also three times as congested with high power digital TV stations. And if you're unfamiliar with what that means, that means that you can't operate your wireless mic on top of a DTV station. They have too much power. you know, virtually it's impossible. There's ways to do it if the station's low enough, but that's kind of advanced practices. But essentially, you should not operate a wireless mic on top of a DTV station. So we have significantly less real estate in the RF world uh, than we did 15 or 20 years ago, which is kind of what's made this this world much, much more difficult uh, and why we need to talk about it more and educate more. Yeah, so can we just go throw some attenuators on their buildings and they not, <laughs> they not know it? Yeah, but then grandma can't watch Channel 4 or whatever it is, right? Well, the harmonics of Channel 4 show up a little bit on Channel uh. 10 sometimes. <laughs> you can kind of see it. It's like, why, is that is that Price is Right just show up there for a second? Come on down, baby. Let's go. That's right. The funny thing is grandma might be trying to watch the same church service that we're using our microphones for, uh, which then we get into uh-huh. a whole inception thing and it's just weird. Right. Inter- interfere it all the way down. Yeah. So I know like, sure, a lot of even your competitors mm-hmm. have lobbyists now in Washington mm-hmm. to yep. help fight for this for our industry. So what's come? Do they do they think this is just going to keep going? Another slice is going to get sold off. Uh, it's there's nothing that's been uh, announced or officially put forward uh, for the 470 to 608 band. Um, and the good news there is that essentially by the time they were to announce something, like that, if they were, it takes seven to ten years for that process to come full circle. So yeah. it's not like tomorrow they're going to be like, oh, we're selling 470 to 608, and in six months you're going to be, you know out of luck. Um, it, it takes a long period of time. Uh, so, but yeah, you're right. Sure. And some other large manufacturers do have, uh, lobbyists and advocates. We actually have a, a fairly large team of individuals that are, are just around spectrum allocation, uh, FCC rulings. And this is 
you know, we talk about the US the most here and the FCC, obviously the one that we care about here, but we do this globally as well. Um, we actually just got dealt a pretty large blow last week. Um, sure, and another manufacturer had a petition in that basically uh, continued a rule that said every major metropolis had to reserve at least one DTV station for wireless mic and white space devices. So what this meant is if you were in LA, you couldn't have DTV on channel 14 through 30, every single one. There had to be at least one channel, one six megahertz space that was available uh, to us as mic users. Uh, and the FCC actually just overruled that. They, they said that that is not a necessity, um, that we do not need to protect one TTV station in every uh, market. So that was a little frustrating. You can look more up information on that online. There's a bunch of articles that just came out. This is fairly fresh in the last week or so. Um, you know, we put a statement out. The other manufacturer put a statement out. We're still looking at some other areas uh, of improvement. If you want to go really far down the rabbit hole, you can look up something called WMAS, W-M-A-S, M-A-S, um, which is essentially a new mode of wireless transmission that allows us to carry uh, multiple multiple transmitter signals kind of on one carrier. Um, it's not legal in the US. It is legal uh, in the UK right now um, with some caveats. I think that is probably if you want to dive down the rabbit hole, what the future uh, is going to look like over the next decade or decade and a half. Um, it's higher density, more channel count uh, in a smaller amount of spectrum. So we're always talking about becoming more spectrally efficient. Um, and that's, if you want to look something up, look up WMAS or WMAS as, uh, as kind of what's coming next. So 5G and you know the ultra wideband, it's turned on in most mm -hmm. major cities in the US now. Yep. But some it isn't. So if a church still has devices in those spaces, mm -hmm. what can they expect to happen? Uh, interference, right? Lots of interference. They are these devices are exceptionally more powerful than your microphone system is, uh, and if something were to fire up uh, near you, it would cause uh, any microphone you have in that space to be unusable. So, yes, anything. The the way it's written is any device capable of transmitting above six hundred and eight megahertz uh, is illegal. Uh, whether or not you're operating it on a frequency that is legal. So that's how it's written. I think it's important mm. to to tell people what the law says. Even if you're operating it at 550 or whatever it may be, if it can transmit above uh, the legal spectrum, it is deemed as illegal. Um, and then, you know, some people argue, how is that enforced? And what's the FCC going to do? Are they really going to come knock on my door? They are finding people. Um, it has happened. And this comes from the fact that these telecoms paid billions of dollars for this space. They are going to protect that investment. Um, but the real, the real problem, the more realistic problem is that your mic, your microphones just won't work. Right. Yeah. And you're going to be holding a bag of really expensive stuff um, that has no purpose and can't function. Do you guys know of any churches that the FCC has contacted for doing this? Um, I don't, I don't know offhand. No. If anybody's listening and they have been contacted, I'd love to know. Same. Yeah. Yeah. Pass yeah, that too. along. Yeah. Send us an email or hit us up. That'd be, that'd be very interesting. So in the meantime, you know, you guys have um, tried to not get around any of this, but you've tried to make it something that we can mitigate a little better through using better tools to find finer slices of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. So that instead of just having a narrow range of frequencies that our, you know, gear can fit in, it's like, okay, there's more options, but then also you can find slivers of slivers to sort of land things in. I know people who deploy larger systems in arenas in big cities that have a lot of DTV interference, you know, RF Explorer and Axiant Digital and other of these tools that, you know, make it make it easier to land things in a smaller slice of the pie have helped. So talk to people who maybe aren't in that space about what some of those tools can do for you and how, you know, if you're considering an upgrade, if you're considering moving from, let's say ULXD to, to Axiant, mm -hmm. you know, what does that look like? Is that, you know, what, what's the, what's kind of some of the deciding factors to make big upgrades like that? 
Yeah, it's a it's a really good point. It's uh, if you look back at Sure's development of wireless systems, we had UHFR forever, right? Which was kind of the staple uh, flagship product from us. Uh, and then there was ULXD and QLXD, uh, and then we came out with something called Axion Analog, which was an analog uh, high tier wireless system at the Axient level, which means it has the remote control features and all the bells and whistles that come with that ecosystem, which we can get into later if we want to. Uh, and Axion Analog had a, had a very short life. It was only only really the top tier product for about a year. And that is because the FCC announced this most recent sell-off of 608 and above. Uh, and we kind of realized as a company that we had to pivot in a way that created a tool for uh, the touring industry and the house tours industry and all the people that we serve, uh, an easier tool to get things done. So previously, wireless manufacturers made uh, groups of RF that you had to buy uh, with labels like H1 or G10 or all these things that we had where you would get you know, 20 or 30 megahertz of spectrum to operate that device in. Uh, and the reality is, is that uh, that's just not enough at a high tier level anymore. Uh, and so Axiant Digital is the entire UHF legal spectrum in every device. So it's 470 to 608. You get the whole piece of the pie that's available to you and you get that in every receiver and every transmitter, regardless of you know which transmitter you choose, which that's a whole nother conversation. So compare that to like a ULXD, ULXD still has the group bands, the G50, the H50, where you're only getting you know, a third of the current legal spectrum. So if you're stationary uh, in a specific area and you're not touring or you're not going on the road, uh, I think that's this is where you start to weigh, do you need a wideband system like Axiom Digital that's 476.08? If you're touring and you don't have something that's wideband for your microphones, it's going to be difficult. There are some markets where if you show up with a G50 ULXD, you might be able to get six on the air max. Uh, because of the DTV stations that exist and where that lands. Whereas with Axiom Digital, you've got a, you know another 50 or 60% of spectrum available to you, which means you're going to have more real estate to operate your devices in. Um, so, you know, we did that and then um, we can go down the rabbit hole and the differences between Axiom Digital and ULXD, but like they're different modulation schemes. Axiom's got better audio quality. And then there's the diversity conversation, which is how does the receiver handle the A antenna and the B antenna and why we have diversity. So I don't know if we want to go into that or uh, pivot to something else. But uh, Let's just talk about what it actually is. So it is it is two antennas yep. broadcasting at the same time, and then, then the receiver picks which one is the strongest, and you'll actually see it switching on the receiver. You can see it go A, B. But when it switches, yeah. it's totally seamless. Yeah. It doesn't drop out. It's you know It's imperceptible. That's ULXD, and that's what we call switching a switching diversity scheme, which you'll find at a high mid-tier wireless level, um, where there's only one radio, physical radio, in each receiver channel. So if you have a quad ULXD, there's four radios, one per channel. And that means we're only listening to one antenna or monitoring one antenna at any time. And then there's something we call a predictive switching comparator, which says hey, what's the signal-to-noise ratio on my A side? And if we start to predict that there could be a dropout or a, a, a series of events that is saying that RF is fading, we're actually blindly switching to the B antenna. Uh, we're, and we're assuming or hoping the B antenna is better. And there's a bunch of stuff we do underneath the hood to try to make sure that that operates, as you mentioned, Jeff, seamlessly. You're not going to hear it. Um, where when you get to the Axiom Digital level, there is two radios per receiver. So there's actually a dedicated radio that's listening to both the A and the B antenna for every frequency in your device. And we know which one's best. And then we do um, what's called true digital diversity, where you got to the digital realm, we're talking about ones and zeros um, in the stream instead of a modulated signal, which again, go down the nerd hole. But we're taking the ones and zeros from the A antenna and the ones and zeros from the B antenna. We're comparing them and then we're combining the best one, the, the best packet essentially, uh, and spitting that out. So that's like, you know, sometimes people ask, why is, why is wireless, good wireless so expensive? And like, if, if you open the hood and you look at all the technology that exists in that box, it's not just priced that high for a reason. There's, you know, a, there's more radios per channel. It's a better diversity scheme. It's got a bunch of bells and whistles in there. It's, it's, more expensive for a lot of reasons and it performs better for those reasons well like psm 1000 is expensive but yeah. when you think about the technology in that belt pack is the same as a racked up two channel wireless microphone yeah 
That's because that's what it is. It's it a receiver. Is. It is a true diversity receiver. Yeah. yeah. That's crazy that it's that much yeah. junk in that little bitty box. Yeah. We got some pretty sweet engineers up there in Chicago. Tell you what. Um, okay. We're we're 40 minutes in here, and I, we're okay. definitely going to have to do part two, three, four, and five. <laughs> this is going to be a series, I think. Yeah. Um, let's talk about audio quality for a second. Okay. I, I joked with you before we hit record. I'm like, I'm going to ask you why UHFR is actually the best sounding wireless mic. And they don't, they're discontinued. It's not supported. It's 20 years old. Yep. But I don't know. Maybe and Lee and I, Lee and I agree on this. It was always my favorite too. And yep. I think part of the reason was that it was, it was analog. And yep. so you had, you had just some of that just signal path that was different. Now, I didn't get a chance to work with Axiom Analog. So I'm going to, I'm going to leave that sort of as my sort of like that was probably the best one ever and I missed it but I, I I tend to like the sound of UHFR better than some of the current digital stuff so anyway talk about audio quality and signal and all that yeah it's definitely uh, a, a preference flavor uh, there's a lot of people that think Axion Analog was the best sounding wireless system we made and I might agree with that and that has to do with kind of the nuts and bolts under the hood of how an analog system works versus a, a digital system. So you mentioned UHFR, Lee. So in the signal chain of an analog RF system, there's a lot of things that have to be done to basically get the audio quality acceptable to shoot it through the air on a radio wave and then pick it up on the other side. Um, and so kind of two of the biggest things that happen in analog wireless is something called a compander, which is a compression and an expander. So we drop the, um, we compress the overall um, dynamic range to a, a limit that we can send over the limited bandwidth we have. Uh, and then we expand it on the backside and the receiver. Uh, and then um, um, what? What was the other one? What did I just say? Compander and... Expander. No. Oh my God, I just drew a blank. We'll edit this. Yeah. Um, that's crazy. I was just talking about it. it it's like an EQ. Oh, pre-emphasis and de-emphasis. Okay. Uh, so that's the compander, right? So we compress and then we expand. Uh, and then we do something called a pre-emphasis and a de-emphasis curve, which essentially is an EQ. So we're going to EQ, we're going to add some boost to the mids and the high mids and the highs. And the Interesting. Reason, yeah. Uh. The reason is that when you send that signal through uh, the air on a, a traditional FM or frequency modulated carrier, which is what analog wireless was, you tend to lose some of the fidelity in the highs and the high mids. So we actually put an EQ curve on it and then we kind of de-EQ it to a certain degree. We try to match what exactly came in. But as you know, it's not always perfect and especially from UHFR, which was, you know, we're almost in 20 years now. Um, so there was a little bit of flavor on the way that that system sounded. And people, you used it for so long uh, and so many people's ears got used to hearing that from wireless. Yeah. That there's, a favor, there's a favoritism to it. Um, and then in digital wireless from Axiom Digital, you know, as with anything digital, some people say it's cold or it's flat or it's harsh, right? And that's because all of that stuff doesn't exist. We convert the audio with an A to D DAC in the stick itself or the transmitter itself. And what we're shooting through the air is literally just ones and zeros. There's no uh, FM. It's a 16 qua modulation scheme, which again, we can go down crazy. But we get to the receiver, we deconvert the ones and zeros, and it is essentially way closer to a wired mic than it's ever been. If you were to put a 58 in a wire and a 58 on an Axiom digital stick, I think it would be really hard for most high-level engineers to accurately pick which one is which, um, just because it's a direct representation. But Well, if, if you do that with an SEV7, my children could hear the difference. <laughs> I was listening to some podcasts that I, you had a little rant about the V7 that cracked me up the other day. But uh, We'll spare you having to talk crap about your... Uh, no, I won't do it. It's uh, okay. it's a big no-no for me personally, and kind of a big no-no. It sure we don't yeah. we don't need to do it. There's no place for it. Um, Anyways, go that's ahead. the difference. Well, that explains a lot. That's something I didn't know, and so that that really uh, helps me understand because there was a flavor, so to speak, mm -hmm. that was being added through the pre-emphasis and de-emphasis and all that stuff. The compander and things. Yeah, exactly. It gave it. They gave it a sound. I think just that, like old analog gear would have, you know, 
whether it's a compressor or an EQ, just the circuitry itself would give you some sort of color. And that's the same thing in analog wireless. Can you imagine if we get a UHFR, um, I guess it would plug be in. a, no, well, <laughs> yes, a plug-in. That's where I was Emulator. going first. But then I thought, well, no, let's just put the freaking thing in the rack and run a line instrument input in one end and then out the back, <laughs> just get that EQ on. And you're not even using the RF at that point. You're just, can you do, does it have an instrument input it on the not. guitar? No. Dang it. You'd have to put it into a, a pack. You'd have to put it into a, yeah, take an instrument cable into a belt pack, and you'd actually have to transmit it to the receiver. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to do double wireless. That's too risky. I know, I know. Okay, <laughs> you, could, well, so. you could, like, unscrew the antenna of the pack, put a, put a pad in, like a 30 dB pad, and plug it directly into the receive antenna. And then there would be no wireless, but it would still be transmitting straight through the cable. But you can't overload the input, so make sure you put a pad in there. Uh, and then that would be a way to get around making it wireless. There it Guys, is. Don't try. Don't try <laughs> this at home. <laughs> We're nerding out now. We're going to connect you with our friend Gnome at Waves, so we can have the Sure UHFR plug-in. That would yeah, be awesome. I, I like would it. go with the Axion Analog, but I'll have to send. Okay. You okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That one. Yep. I never used that one either. But that thing was like five grand a channel too. It was. It was bonkers. Yeah. It was. It was a feat of engineering at the time. So. Well, this has been super informative and I think really helpful to a lot of our listeners. So I feel like we're just getting started, but we kind of have to wrap it up. So we definitely want to have you back, Jason. I think you've, you know, you've been super informative and a pleasure to talk to. So thanks so much for your time today. If you're willing, we'd love to do this again. Absolutely. This has been, it's fun, man. It's easy with you guys. I, I enjoyed it. So it's a great way to start this. Uh, well, it's Monday today. I don't know when this will be dropped, but Monday morning for me. Uh, I'd love to be back. Um, I'm hoping maybe, uh, maybe we'll, uh, we'll get to see you guys on the tour coming up here pretty soon. So nice. We'll, see. we'll yeah. see. Maybe do some videos too. I think having what we talked about today and, you know, 20 or 30 videos would really help a ton of churches. So let's make yep, that yeah, happen. Definitely. Very cool. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Man, that was great. I loved hearing from Jason and just his practical advice of how to make wireless systems more efficient and effective in the way they're deployed. We're definitely going to have him back soon because we have got to continue this conversation. Before we go today, though, I wanted to just mention a couple of things that are new to MXU now. So if you're not an MXU subscriber, you need to go check it out. We have added a feature called Collections, which makes navigating and collating some of the videos that you find most useful so much easier. So that's a great new feature. Also, the entire UI of the homepage has been redesigned to hopefully make finding what you need more efficient, easier, and simpler to use. So we hope that you'll go check it out. Go to getmxu.com and sign up today. All right, everybody, we'll see you next time.